So friends, uh, we are quite lucky uh, this morning to have our community scholar uh, with us. It, this is his 16th lecture, is that what you said? And um, we're just uh, reminiscing a little bit about the old days of Reformed Judaism. Uh, actually, Professor Letterman is uh, a Reformed rabbi, ordained in 1971, uh, taught at Yale, taught at the University of Maryland, and uh, most recently, in the last many, many years, uh, University of Pennsylvania, uh, one of the finest schools in the country, one of the great uh, Judaic studies programs um, and uh, institutes uh, in the country, in the world, really. Um, and as many of you know, we're planning a trip to Germany in 2018, and this happens to be an area of expertise. So it might have been coincidental that he was lecturing on this topic here, or maybe divine intervention. I don't know. I don't know. But uh, we are so glad that you're here. Welcome. And uh, you'll excuse me, I'm going to have to leave a little bit early because i got to go to our bar mitzvah at Temple Bad Yam. So, uh, you know, half Torah will travel. Bad Yam, you're just bring that out any place that oh, we take Oh, all right, okay. So right. welcome to our congregation. We're really Thank glad you. You're here. Thank you, Rabbi. Uh, and it's good to see you all. I say that with some hesitancy at 8.30. I don't want to see anybody. But... Uh, so you notice this is the first lecture. If some of you have been heard me before, that I'm sitting down. I'm, um, um, I'm not used to uh, to lecture at this hour. Uh, I've taught for four or five years, and I've never had a morning class. So um, you, you'll forgive me if I don't sound as coherent as usual. I spoke last night in your uh, the, the other congregation in Irvine. Yeah, and some of you were actually there. Um, and uh, I was I was more lively last night than I am right now. But I, I hope I'm hoping the the fear of you will uh, somehow um, you know my uh, raise my adrenaline and I'll do better. Um, so let me tr kind of contextualize what I'm doing. I, I, I uh, some of you don't know me. Uh, a few of you have been following me around uh, for some reason throughout many of these lectures. Um, I've been doing this for 45 years, as the rabbi said, and I've taught at three institutions. Um, I'm also uh, an institution builder. Uh, I have to tell you just a minute about my institution that I built at Penn. Um, it is an institute for advanced study. Um, it was originally Dropsy College, and there's a whole history here. Dropsy was one of the first, was the first secular institution of Jewish learning in this country, founded in 1907. Uh, it collapsed by the 60s with the explosion of Jewish studies around this country. Um, but the uh, Board of Overseers approached Walter Annenberg. Uh, if you want to learn anything, Rabbi, about, about Penn, your, your daughter should know this. Um, there are two people you have to know. One is Ben Franklin, uh, the founder of University of Pennsylvania, and the other is Walter Annenberg. They gave a lots, lots, of, lots and lots of money. Um, so um, uh, Walter Annenberg, for some reason, who has a real, I mean, he's Jewish, but has a kind of problem with his Jewish identity and particularly hates rabbis. Um, nevertheless, was convinced that uh, they would build an institute for advanced study, a kind of a higher yeshiva gedola, great yeshiva, for um, academics in Judaism, Christianity, and uh, Islam. And they would come and they would solve all the problems of the world, and when then, you know, uh, we wouldn't have any clashes of civilization. Um, and he put up uh, a building uh, downtown Philadelphia, a beautiful building right across from Independence Hall. Uh, it's still there. 
Um, and he offered $2 million a year, just threw it at us, uh, at the institution, and found Bernard Lewis, the great Islamic scholar at Princeton, to direct it. Now, Bernard Lewis wasn't even in Jewish studies, but he had a big name. Uh, so anyway, it sort of ran, uh, called the Annenberg Research Institute for about six, seven years. And then uh, Annenberg realized he was just giving away his money and he wasn't sure what he was getting out of it. So he approached Penn and he said, you're going to take it on. And of course, Penn, uh, you know, had its own Jewish studies program for many, many years. Um, but why would they want this and to take on this burden, this responsibility? But of course, it was Walter Annenberg not asking, but demanding. So it happened. Uh, and that's when I came to Penn and I left, uh, when they, they offered me a job in the history department and then uh, they said, you know, build this center. So I saw it as a really great challenge. The idea of bringing together scholars from around the world, not, not talking about Islam and Christianity directly, but indirectly. This would be a place about Jewish civilization. Uh, and then we, we create around the table every year, 20, 25 scholars who are invited with fellowships. Some of the most top scholars in the world and some of the most junior people just finishing their doctorate. And creating a kind of, I, I was, when I was a young boy, I was in the Zionist Youth Movement and I, I, I used to work in camps. So this is a kind of camp for adults, for adult scholars. And to have them socialize, to speak with each other and to create Torah. Um, we publish a book every year. We publish a journal called the Jewish Quarterly Review. Uh, it became uh, basically uh, the greatest think tank of Jewish studies in the country. Uh, and I ran it for 20 years. Uh, raised a lot of money from rich uh, pen donors. Uh, and it's fully endowed now, and it's now called, uh, uh, in honor of our first uh, chair of board, uh, the Katz Center, the Herbert Katz Center uh, at the University of uh, Penn. So in addition to the Jewish Studies pedagogic program, this is a kind of think tank for Jewish learning. Uh, and uh, I, you know, so I wrote a lot of books and stuff, but I, I really am very proud of the institution and just have to mention it to you. So if you're ever in Philadelphia, you should come and visit. We have one of the great libraries of the Judaic world. Um, there are 400,000 uh, Judaic books in, at the University of Pennsylvania, 8% of the entire Penn Library, um, including 30 incunabula. That's a word that some of you guys know because I used that before. What is incunabula? You forgot already? Uh, books that are published before 1500, which you know, is a kind of uh, prestige books. Um, it, uh, I, I, at the end of each course that I teach at Penn, oh, the other cool thing about Penn, since you know, I'm now in a Reformed synagogue, I can talk freely as a Reformed rabbi too. My father was a Reformed rabbi, my son-in-law is a Reformed rabbi, his father is a Reformed rabbi. I have a long, you know, I have yichas in the synagogue. So, um, um, but I'm the only Reformed rabbi that teaches mostly Orthodox kids. Uh, most of the kids who take my course are Orthodox. So I'm a kind of shaliach to the Orthodox. <laughs> And it's, you know, the Orthodox kids that will take my course are obviously tolerant. I'm tolerant of them, they're tolerant of me, or they, they, they know who I am. I mean, I don't, I don't I, I'm just professor at Penn, I'm not rabbi, but nevertheless, they learn. But, can you, but the lecture I give now, for example, or I'm gonna give part of it on Geiger, the founder of Reform Judaism, I give to Orthodox kids. And believe me, they didn't have that in their day schools. Uh, and I teach Jewish feminism and a whole bunch of other things. Um, so uh, I, I am, uh, my, my goal is to make them more appreciative of other versions of Judaism, uh, to enlarge their horizons, and to make them appreciate the totality of Judaism, that Reform Judaism is just as legitimate uh, as their own versions of Judaism. Uh, and I, I succeed, uh, and I respect them tremendously. 
these kids have an appreciation, forgive me for wondering here, but maybe this is more interesting than, uh, than what we're talking about. Um, they, they, um, they come with a certain intensity and a certain knowledge and a certain love of Judaism, which we haven't succeeded in conveying to our kids. From Jewish kids are totally inept when they come to the Hillel at, uh, you know, I mean, it's not so bad anymore because we now have a reform rabbi uh, and they are organized and so on. And there is an enormous outreach to non-affiliated that goes on. Hillel is one of the great, uh, Penn Hillel is one of the great Hillels in the country. Um, but they are certainly, uh, you know, inadequate in terms of their Jewish background when they meet these Orthodox kids. Um, and I, of course, I want to break down, and I, and I, the reason why I want to flag that I'm a Reform rabbi there is because I want them to know that Reform rabbis aren't all, you know, ignoramuses, chas uh, v'chalila, and uh, you know, God forbid. And I, I want to show them that we are as legitimate. Uh, you know, one of the great things about universities is the ability to create a sense of tolerance and mutual respect, not only in between Jews and Christians, but between Jews and Jews. Uh, which is, of course, our real problem in, in America today. We are very divided. Um, so uh, it is a unique position to be in as a Reform rabbi. Uh, and I've appreciated it over the years. And uh, I wish there were more of my Reform colleagues, as I said to the rabbi already, that would go into academia. Because that is, in some sense, the last trenches. Most of these kids have no Jewish education. And if I can get them in one course, a survey of Jewish history over the course of, of the years, uh, that's, I can do more than you know, many years of, uh, of Sunday school. Um, I also want to tell you, uh, not that I'm advertising it, but if you're interested, uh, I, I'm sure you've heard of the great courses, which are you know, advertised widely. Um, and I have two courses. Two of my courses are on. You know, so you can get 48 hours of Rudiman if you really want. I don't know if you want it. But, uh, um, so in, including uh, a version of this as well. So um, what I'm going to do here. So here's what I want to do. Um, let's now, so what is the context of this lecture? When I uh, originally agreed to do 21 lectures for Ari Katz, uh, and as I explained, the only, re the rabbi, the only reason I'm doing this is because I have two grandchildren <coughs> in this area. I mean, I, I, I don't know who can uh, withstand 21 lectures. I'm, I'm, I'm doing it, but it's, as you see, I'm, um, I gotta drink water. Um, <coughs> um, but, uh, you know, it's been, it's been wonderful meeting a community and seeing such a structure as that uh, done by Ari Katz, who works with the synagogues and the rabbis. <coughs> it, is, it is quite uh, an experience to see Jews that really want to learn. Um, I've been around. I've been doing uh, in what's called in the trade synagogues for 40 years or so. Um, and I've, I've seen the world. And as I said last night, uh, when I was on the pulpit of the other congregation, um, I can tell in five minutes what's going on in a synagogue. You know, when I walk in as an observer, it's a very interesting role to play uh, as a scholar in residence. Um, you know, whether Jews are alive, whether Judaism is alive, whether you're, you're caring and so on. Uh, the fact that you get up at 8.30 in the morning is quite a commitment on Shabbat. Um, um, so, um, I, I indeed uh, am, am impressed by a community that wants to learn, a learning community. I think we have lost it. I think we have suffered from a kind of dumbing down. Uh, I mean, we have all kinds of problems that we face as Jews today. Um, but uh, the irony of our world is that there are more resources for Jewish learning than ever in Jewish history. 
and I really mean that in term, not only in term, I'm not only speaking about internet here and that kind of thing, but the number of university programs, the number of seminaries, the number of scholars of Judaism, the number of books that are available, the number of journals. Uh, it's an explosion of learning that never existed in Jewish history. But it isn't ironic that our Jews are more illiterate than ever uh, in terms of their own knowledge of Judaism. So uh, I've been a kind of reform rabbi that cares deeply about adult learning. I've also tried to have an impact on the CCR, but I, uh, years ago I was the head of their uh, continuing rabbinic education program. Um, but I'm disappointed. I don't think uh, rabbis learn enough. I don't think the CCR uh, academic programs are, are serious enough. Um, and I would like to see more. I think rabbis need to study like doctors and, you know, to keep up in the field and so on. Um, and I don't, I, I see an increasing gap between people that are in the academic world and rabbis, and there shouldn't be. Uh, in fact, I think rabbis are more important because rabbis take Torah and make it live, make it real, you know, are speaking to living Jews, are not simply, you know, studying in a kind of ivory tower. Uh, but they have to know about the issues that are going on in the academic world in order to channel them in a way that they can use them as living Torah. So anyway, that's my, uh, that's my sermon on that. So let me move on. So I want to talk, so the context of this, originally, I, I told Ari I didn't want to simply teach one lecture. I wanted to teach in, in subjects, in clusters. So there are, if you see the whole brochure of the 21 lectures, you will see that there are five or six areas that I've written on. One, for example, is called God and Nature, which is about the interaction between Judaism and science, something that I've worked on for many years. Um, another, uh, which I began last night, is on the history of Messianism, Jewish Messianism, the Messianic impulse in Jewish history. And I'm giving actually two more lectures this week in other synagogues. I don't know where I am. I just, this driver just takes me. Um, and um, uh, a, a third topic, uh, so, so this part is called Great Debates in Jewish History. And it began by speaking about the Middle Ages, about Yudha Levi and Maimonides. My second talk was on the Gaon of Vilna and Baal Shem Tov, uh, Hasidism and its opponents. Um, and this was actually the third. So everything is out of order. So this is about the founder of Reform Judaism, the founder of Neo-Orthodoxy. Uh, and it is, as the rabbi said, uh, very much situated in Germany. Uh, I also am giving a lecture next week about three Zionist visions, uh, three Zionist thinkers who disagreed with each other. Uh, and my last lecture, which I already gave in another synagogue, it was another reform synagogue, but I don't remember where it was, maybe some of you, you remember, uh, on Abraham Joshua Heschel and Mordechai Kaplan. Um, so these are the five. So you're getting sort of the third and obviously independent of the rest. But I just wanted to show you that I, I just didn't come up with this, uh, you know, in the clear blue sky. Now, I, this is a debate. It's a debate, as we would say, l'shem shamayim. Um, I, I, in some of the other cases, I, I, could, I almost dealt with it in a Galian way. That is, you know, one side, the other side, and then a kind of synthesis that emerges at the end. Uh, I'm not sure that Hirsch or uh, Geiger uh, ever were able to live in one room with each other. Uh, this was a debate that was indeed fierce. They were both in Frankfurt for a period of time. Uh, Frankfurt is very special to me because uh, last year I won a Humboldt Fellowship, which uh, invites me now for, uh, I have a four-year gig in the University of, of Frankfurt, uh, and I spend a lot of time in that city, and uh, you would think it's just sort of an industrial uh, area with, um, 
you know, near a big airport, but uh, there is a very rich life in Germany, uh, a Jewish life that existed for many years. Uh, it is still there in some respects, uh, and Jewish studies is quite alive in, in Frankfurt especially as a major Jewish studies program. Uh, I've met with the president of the university, uh, and they just created the first Holocaust chair in Germany. Um, and in the same breath, uh, this was very moving because, uh, you know, in the, upsy, uh, the, in the crazy world we live in now, you know, all of a sudden Angela Merkel in Germany, to me, becomes, you know, one of the few heroes that, that remain in the world that we live in uh, as, as, you know, the world. Uh, anyway, I won't talk politics. But um, uh, she took in, um, as you know, 800,000 refugees from Syria. And she's probably going to be defeated because of that. Uh, but the president of the university told me how they took five athletic fields and transformed them uh, into refugees for, uh, you know, places for these refugees. And what was interesting about the context in which she told me, uh, she's, this was after telling me about the Holocaust chair. In other words, uh, clearly the sense of guilt, the sense of we have to do the right thing, uh, what was driving her. I was really very moved by that. And uh, the entire faculty uh, have been at my center in Philadelphia, faculty in Jewish studies. These are all Hebrew-speaking Gentiles. Uh, none of them are Jewish, but I speak to them in Hebrew all the time, and they are brilliant scholars. I mean, I, they're really incredible scholars. I, I, uh, if the rabbi wants to go to Frankfurt with your group, I, I'll try to set him up with someone to talk to you from uh, Frankfurt or any place else you want to go, because I, I do spend a lot of time now these days in Germany and Berlin and so on. Um, but anyway, Frankfurt is, is our, uh, the place we're going to talk about here. So let me move, uh, since I've been rambling on, but I just wanted to give you a sense, a little bit of my world before I did that, before I started talking. Um, give you a little sense of the two characters in our drama, which emerges in the 19th century. One of them I hope you're more familiar with. There actually, this would be a trialogue rather than a dialogue uh, between two, three, because the person I'm leaving out is Zacharia Frankel, the founder of a, a historical Judaism or conservative Judaism. In other words, we're speaking about the founding fathers, quote unquote, of uh, the major branches of Judaism in America. Uh, but I'm only going to talk here. It's just, I just don't. I, I'm not sure I can even, you know, uh, talk about these two adequately. Um, but uh, Frankel, of course, would be part of this story as well. And actually, there's a fourth part of this uh, of this story which needs to be added on. Um, Samson Raphael Hirsch was the founder of what we will call neo-orthodoxy as opposed to ultra-orthodoxy or what we would call in modern Hebrew charediut or charedim. Um, and there the representative might be, I mean there are a whole bunch of them, but the one I would be thinking of uh, is a rabbi called uh, the Chatam Sofer, Moses Sofer, um, who was well known for his Hebrew uh, expression, kol chadash min haTorah asur. Uh, anything that is new is forbidden by the Torah. Uh, that, that's pretty, uh, you know, I, I guess, I guess uh, maybe there's some people in Congress that would uh, take that position. Uh, but, um, um, but in any case, that's pretty arch-conservative, right? So as you see, that, that already I'm defining Hirsch as being not all the way to the, to the right religiously. Uh, we're not speaking politically here, religiously. 
Um, so, in other words, to really paint uh, a full picture of the various um, uh, emerging movements within Judaism in the 19th century, I would have to add more than these two. Um, but my point about all of them is that they are all constructions of modern Judaism. In other words, neo-orthodoxy, ultra-orthodoxy, uh, conservative Judaism, reform Judaism, uh, are, were all created. In other words, uh, when, when Orthodox Jews speak about this is Torah true Judaism and reform is a, is a modern invention, that's baloney. Uh, a modern Orthodoxy is also a modern invention of modern Judaism. Uh, so in, in that sense, uh, you know, uh, that, that's how I correct uh, the understanding of those Orthodox Jewish kids that sit in my class. Um, and, and speak about the fact that each of the movements drew obviously from the past but rethought Judaism. In other words, even the ultra-Orthodox, uh, in arguing that Judaism doesn't move, it remains the same, and it, it fights off defensively any kind of change, that's against traditional Judaism. That wasn't the per perspective of traditional Jews in the first place. So that position is in indeed a modern construction of Judaism. But anyway, let's uh, stay away from that and go back to the two individuals. So let me present... Uh, looking at my time, let me present in about 15 minutes each of the thinkers and then compare them. Um, I gave you, uh, did, did you get some texts? Uh, or The texts were never given out? Email. You got email. something in email? email. All right, well, I, I'm not going to refer to those texts, uh, but, I, but indeed, if you want to read them after, uh, they would be great homework for you. All right? I, I, I really don't believe that oral teaching is enough. You have to have written and you know, have to read. So if you really want to learn something, uh, these are really very good texts, uh, and uh, they will uh, both on Abraham Geiger and Samson Raphael Hirsch. Um, read um, uh, the, the first uh, footnote of each text, and you'll have a kind of uh, introduction to the text. Uh, that's the way they, they, they do it here. This is uh, a wonderful reader of modern Jewish history from which I've drawn from. Um, so I'm not going to use these texts right now. I'm going to use actually another text. Uh, but... Um, um, Nevertheless, I, I would love to have you read that. I think that would be uh, most fulfilling for me as a teacher if, if you actually took this a step farther. So the two things that I want to talk about are Abraham Geiger and, and, and Samson Raphael Hirsch. Abraham Geiger lived from 1810 to 1874. He was an academic, uh, educated in the universities of Germany. This was a new phenomenon in modern Jewish life. I've already spoken about the entrance of Jews to the university, which begins at the end of the 16th, 17th century. The first university to accept Jews to its medical school was the University of Padua. Uh, and uh, so Jews had already entered universities afterwards in Leiden, and German universities now were opening itself to Jews. Not necessarily as professors, but at least as students. Abraham Geiger wrote a dissertation uh, on the Jewish sources of the Quran. So his original particular expertise was in Islam and Judaism, which is very interesting. And it is a classic work. Uh, what did Muhammad take from Judaism? Um, it has been studied most recently. Uh, I, I should mention her name because she also wrote a very important book about Geiger. Uh, Susie Heschel, Susanna Heschel, uh, is the, the daughter of the famous Jewish thinker, uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel. Uh, she teaches at Nar Dartmouth College. Uh, you know her? She, she was, was here? with us on Sunday night. Uh, Just Sunday night, really? She was doing a Martin Luther King, Abraham Joshua Heschel program. Oh, okay. No, at, she's... At the AME Church. So she didn't speak about her own work. She spoke about her <coughs> father. Okay. Uh, oh, that's pretty cool. All right. So anyway, Susie is a friend. And um, 
But she also wrote a brilliant book about Abraham Geiger. And if you want, want to read, uh, let's see, do I have the title of the book? Um, no, I only have Michael Myers' book. Uh, no, no, no. Yeah, Susanna Heschel, Abraham Geiger and the Jewish Jesus, 1998. Uh, and Michael Meyer, of course, is the great historian of Reformed Judaism. Uh, he has been professor for many years. He was a uh, teacher of your rabbi. Um, and his book is called Response to Modernity, a, a History of Reform Movement in Judaism. Um, so uh, those are the two most important works. But uh, Susie is now writing a book on how many Jews became involved in the study of Islam. Throughout the 19th century, uh, they're mostly Jews. Uh, and that calls for explanation. Why were Jewish scholars fascinated by Islam and what were they trying to do? Of course, there's a longer history here because if you go back to the beginning of Christian involvement in Jewish studies in universities, I'm beginning in the 16th and 17th century, many of these Christian Hebraic scholars were also scholars of Arabic. So, you know, Semitic languages. So obviously there has always been a relationship. Uh, so Geiger, in a sense, continues this tradition. Uh, now Geiger, there was already a generation of reform Judaism around when Geiger began to write and serve several pulpits ending up in the end founding Institution for Jewish Studies in Berlin. Uh, certainly a very great scholar and, and a great spokesman for Reform Judaism. I think Geiger's importance is that he provides us with an ideology of what early reform is about. Uh, initially the Reform Jews began, and I was just telling the rabbi uh, of a major anniversary, the 200th anniversary of the first Reform Synagogue uh, in the city of Hamburg. Uh, I happen to spend a lot of time there as well. Uh, and um, they have a reform synagogue there. Um, I actually uh, took a group, uh, uh, I did the history of the Jews of Germany, uh, and I had visited a conservative synagogue uh, in Frankfurt. Uh, and no, no, sorry, uh, a, uh, a, I was, uh, we were a guest of the Orthodox synagogue in Munich. Uh, we had visited a, a conservative synagogue in Berlin, uh, but on Friday night, we ended up being in Hamburg, and I contacted the Reformed Temple, and they said, you know, we'd love to have you, but we don't have any rabbi. And I said, well, I think I know how to conduct the service. Um, so I said, I'll be the rabbi if you'll have me. Uh, and I wrote a sermon, uh, uh, and uh, actually the building at the time, they've moved since then, because I came back just last year, and, I be, and now I'm an honorary member of the synagogue. Um, but um, it was held in a structure uh, uh, in the old part of Altona, which was very near the first Reformed temple. It was an old Jewish hospital. Um, and there I showed up with 20 American Jews uh, on Friday night, and I gave a sermon about what it means to return to the first Reformed temple. Um, and it was translated into German and into Russian because you know the Jews of Germany today are mostly Russian. Um, and there were 20 Russians and 20 Germans there. Uh, and the Russians were suspicious of the German Jews. Uh, what's very interesting is that many Germans show up and they look very blonde and very non-Jewish. And indeed they are. Uh, and you know, but they're all welcomed. But the Russian Jews are suspicious of them. There is this tension between Russians and Germans. But nevertheless, with the 20 Americans, we kind of found a certain solidarity um, there were two women who were playing with guitars, and they had learned all of the music from the internet. 
So they were limited. So I started actually teaching music also and singing songs with them and so on. Uh, and then they had prepared us this meal, and I swear we were all crying at the end. It was it was actually incredible. This year, uh, 2017, uh, I think in the fall, I know Michael Meyer is involved. Um, my colleagues there will be uh, hosting a, a big academic conference uh, uh, in honor of the 200th anniversary of Reform Judaism in Germany. Um, and I, if you get there probably even a little later, uh, and I have to tell you one more thing. I, I know I should be talking about Geiger, but I can't help but, uh, you know, at this hour, whatever comes out, you just should be thankful. Uh, so um, there is the edifice. This, this perhaps is, is a kind of metaphor of German Jewry. Um, the edifice of the synagogue that closed in 1937, the Reformed Temple, still remains in a different part of Germany. It's actually very close to the university where I was a fellow. There's a Maimonides Institute of Jewish Thought at the University of Hamburg, run totally by non-Jews. Uh, and I'm uh, you know, a fellow there that comes regularly when I can. I, Hamburg's a beautiful, beautiful city. Uh, so that should be on your map along with Berlin and Frankfurt and Munich and so on, uh, depending you know, what, how you arrange this, this trip. Uh, I guess you can't do it all because you have to go to Israel also, so you'll have to be selective. But anyway, there is a, the temple remains. It's now, uh, uh, the, 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 the radio runs, uh, uh, the, takes over the building. But they left the facade of the, of the front. Uh, and you walk over there, it's on a beautiful side street in a very fashionable neighborhood of, uh, of Hamburg. And there um, is this enormous building, and you see across the Hebrew words, Beiti bayit lechol ha'amin, from Isaiah, my house shall be a house for all peoples. The watchword of Reformed Judaism, right? Uh, the notion of tolerance, of universal God and so on. And then in front has been put a, uh, a an iron uh, monument um, it's a Torah ark, which is ripped open, and the Torah is ripped and lying on the ground. And it says, in honor of the, the Shoah, of, of the Holocaust. The juxtaposition of Reform Judaism and its open values, its universal values, and the destruction of European Jewry, wow, that's the first thing I took my people to. And it just blows you away, that, uh, that scene. Uh, it was extraordinarily powerful. Uh, there's a wonderful book that you should read before you go to Germany um, by Amos Alone, uh, who died a couple of years ago, called The Pity of It All, A History of German Jewry. Uh, and, you know, uh, it, it's, it's, it's an unbelievable world. I go back to Germany, why? I mean, I, I never went to Germany until 2000, I was afraid. You know, I would see Nazis, I, I actually, was at a conference, I was the keynote speaker, so I was kind of obliged to go, and I said to myself, actually, this is true, I, I want to uh, go to one city as a kind of pilgrimage. I just finished a book on Judaism and science, and it turns out that Hamburg is also important because it was a center where the conversos came after they were expelled from uh, Spain uh, and from the Iberian Peninsula. They went to Amsterdam, but they also went to Hamburg, which was an open port. So there was a, a big Sephardic community in Altona as well. And right next to the Ripperbaum, 
Rippenbaum is the sex zone of uh, Hamburg. I, I, I know you didn't need to know that information. But uh, um, right next to it is where the Jewish cemetery is. And half of it is, is Ashkenazic and half of it is Sephardic. And I had to go see the graves of, of the doctors I had written on. Uh, so I took a pilgrimage there. And then I discovered Reform Judaism. You see all the parts of Jewish history that you can sort of locate in just one German city. I haven't spoken about any other German city here. Um, uh, Frankfurt also has uh, its rich heritage, and I'm going to get back to it in a second. Um, but, uh, uh, but that was my first uh, encounter with Germany, and from then on I kept going every year. And I guess I live in my own little dream world. All the synagogues are still there. I, when I go to Berlin, I go to Abraham Geiger's grave, and I say Kaddish. Uh, and Leopold Suns is buried there, all kinds of famous German Jews. Uh, and uh, and uh, Hermann Kohn and uh, Leo Beck is buried in America, but uh, but his his wife is buried in the German in the Berlin cemetery. The Germans didn't destroy any German any cemetery Jewish cemeteries. They're all there, including the Worm Cemetery that goes back to the 11th century, which you have to see as well. Uh, so I guess I'm living with Jewish ghosts, perhaps, or living in a time machine. But this is a very rich history, you know, a thousand years. Uh, so, indeed, it was almost wiped out, almost completely wiped out by the Holocaust. But nevertheless, you know, uh, we've only been around for a couple hundred years, you know. Will we survive that long? I hope so. Uh, but who knows? Uh, but in any case, it is a rich history to study. Back to Frankfurt. Geiger uh, ended, uh, was, was a rabbi in Frankfurt and so was Hirsch, and, that's, and, and they hated each other. Uh, if you're talking about cemeteries, to make a segue here, um, there are several uh, Jewish cemeteries in, in Frankfurt. Frankfurt has an incredible Jewish museum, which was uh, originally the Rothschild House. The Rothschilds were very prominent in the city of Frankfurt itself. And there's a second cemetery outside the city. And there the great Jewish uh, thinker Franz Rosenzweig is buried. He, a big grave right in front of, in, in the beginning. But if you walk into the cemetery itself, and you look for the grave of Samson Raphael Hirsch, the Orthodox rabbi, you will find it. <clears throat> and around him are all kinds of Orthodox Jews who are buried. And then you will see the remnants of a stone wall. And believe it or not, this is what uh, Hirsch did. He, this, and this is what, how I would define orthodoxy, to separate the so-called pure from the impure. The Orthodox, in creating his Gemeind, separated true Orthodox Jews from non-Orthodox. It's gone, obviously. It doesn't exist anymore, that, uh, that wall. But you can see the remnant of it there. And the coolest thing is the most ostentatious graves in the cemetery are the Rothschild graves. I mean, they're really you know, fancy graves, right? They're outside the wall because they were you know, good Reformed Jews. You know? They weren't the Orthodox. Uh, but if you want to see Orthodoxy in Reform you know, and what it once was, you have to go see that cemetery as well. You have to look for all these, these kinds of, of sites uh, of Germany. So th that, that still remains. But here, uh, rather than talk about Geiger, I want to read you a paragraph that was not necessarily written by Geiger, but was written almost, uh, it, it, certainly in his lifetime, and I think reflects what Reform Judaism is. I want to leave you, and I'm, I see I've spent so much time talking here about all kinds of other things a sense of what reform and, and, and neo-orthodoxy are so that I can compare them. So I want to read this paragraph, I want to analyze it, and then I want to sw switch to Hirsch. Uh, and uh, I I'm going to try to give you a very quick synopsis. I can't really do justice to this, I see, and particularly as I wander around uh, at 8.30 in the morning, I wander around, I mean, intellectually. 
but I hope uh, my stories at least are, are interesting. So here um, is a statement about Reformed Judaism. And perhaps we could parse it together. Our inner faith, the religion of our hearts, is no longer in harmony with the external forms of Judaism. We want a positive religion. We want Judaism. We hold fast to the spirit of Holy Writ, which we acknowledge as a witness of divine revelation. We hold fast to everything by which God is truly honored in ways rooted in the spirit of our religion. We hold fast to the conviction that Judaism's teaching of God is eternally true. We hold fast to the promise that this teaching will someday become the possession of all mankind. But we want to understand the sacred scripture according to the divine spirit, not according to the letter. We can no longer pray honestly for a messianic kingdom on earth, which will bring us back to the homeland of our forefathers, pretending that we would return to it from a strange land, the very fatherland to which we are tied with all the bonds of love. We can no longer recognize a code as an unchangeable law code, which maintains with unbending insistence that Judaism's task is expressed by forms which originated in, in, a, time which is, uh, uh, in a time which is forever past and which will never return. We who are deeply committed to the sacred content of our religion cannot hope to sustain it in its inherited form, and even less can we hope to hand it on to our descendants. Thus placed between the graves of our fathers and the cradles of our children, we are stirred by the trumpet sound of our time. It calls us to be the last of a great inheritance in its old form, at the same time the first two with unswerving courage and bound together as brothers in word and deed, shall lay the cornerstone of a new edifice for us and for all generations to come. I would argue that that paragraph summarizes uh, Geiger's understanding of Reformed Judaism and the first generation of Reformed Judaism. Now, I want to caution you. When I talk about Geiger now and Reformed Judaism, I'm talking about classical reform in the 19th century. There, is, there are continuities to our own Reformed Judaism, but there are also differences, significant differences. I know you had to listen to it. You don't have the text in front of you. But is there anything in that text that struck you as being significant? What, if I, to encapsulate that text, give me a, give me a sense, Professor. Yeah. The anti-Zionist attitude. Okay. All right. So we're not going back to our messianic kingdom. We're going to love our fatherland. That's clear. But there's something else that, that I want to start with. And what I usually do with my Orthodox Jewish students is I, I do artwork, but I, I know when there's a board here. Um, so I, I'm not very good with art, but that's a tree, okay? And that's, these are branches, uh, and that's a branch that's kind of fallen off. So I say to the Jews, from the perspective of this paragraph, um, which is Orthodox Judaism, which is Reformed Judaism? Uh, yeah, tell me. Yeah, it's broken off, all right. Um, so what I want to tr try to say is the following. Uh, two things. Uh, these Jews are not about assimilation. They're not about giving up on Judaism. They are deeply committed to the survival of Jewish people. We are facing a crisis. People are losing the faith. They're assimilating. They're converting at the beginning of the 19th century. And therefore, we need to find a way of refiguring Judaism so that it will survive. In other words, these people are deeply concerned about the future of the Jewish community, number one. Number two, they see themselves as authentic as opposed to inauthentic. 
And indeed, this relates now back to Geiger. Geiger was a scholar of Islam, but he was also a scholar of Pharisaic Judaism, of ancient Judaism, of ancient rabbinic Judaism. If you know anything about the ancient Jewish world, you know that during uh, the period of the several centuries before uh, the common era, before the birth of Christ, uh, rabbinic Judaism emerged around particular uh, sectarian groups. One was called the Pharisees, another was called the Sadducees, a third were called the Essenes. The Pharisees and the Sadducees particularly struggled, you gotta go, uh, during, thank you. Uh, and uh, the Pharisees clearly were, uh, took on the Sadducees who represented the, the priesthood and the rich classes. The Pharisees identified more with, with the lower classes and tried to adjust Judaism with their new teachers who called themselves rabbis. Now, of course, those of you that know the New Testament may realize that the Pharisees are painted as a kind of hypocrites or legalists or uh, the, the, the portrait of them in the New Testament is not necessarily positive. But that's not the historical entity the Pharisees were. Uh, in fact, for Geiger especially, and the whole group of Reformed Jewish historians. Pharisaic Judaism took Judaism out of its stultified condition and allowed interpretation to make Judaism fit into the times. The Pharisees were the innovators. The Pharisees were the first Reformed Jews, so to speak. They, they understood that Judaism had to respond to the time that we live in by recreating itself by speaking, by addressing the larger culture in which Jews lived. Uh, and thus, the Pharisees, therefore, with rabbinic interpretation, created an oral law, created rabbinic literature, were able to adjust Judaism to the exigencies of their time. And thus, for our world of 19th century, here I'm speaking as Abraham Geiger, we are the modern-day Pharisees. Uh, and in fact, there is a professor at HUC named Ellis Rifkin that actually wrote a book, more or less with that title, about the modern-day Pharisees being Reformed Jews. Now, is that true historically or not? That's another question. In other words, here, uh, what I'm trying to show you is that the scholarship that's going on in the 19th century, what we call in German, anybody know German here? Wissenschaft des Judentum, the science of Judaism, the academic study of Judaism begins in the 19th century. And Geiger is one of its proponents. But here he is using his scholarship to argue for the emergence of the ideology of Reformed Judaism. So we are not in, we are authentic because like the Pharisees, we are emerging to rethink Judaism, reformulate it, and progress according to the time. This Orthodox Judaism is stuck in its tracks, is incapable of responding to the world at large, and therefore we are losing Jews and we must go forward. So, Judaism is therefore forward-looking, <coughs> Judaism reinterprets itself, Jew and Reformed Jews are the Pharisees of their time. But there's even something even more remarkable about uh, Geiger and Reformed Judaism. This is the thesis of, uh, of uh, Susanna Heschel. Geiger not only studied ancient Judaism, he studied ancient Christianity. Um, and indeed he studied Jesus. And we have already emerging in this period a whole new Jew Jewish scholarship about Jesus and ancient Christianity. To underscore the Jewishness of Jesus. Jesus was a rabbi. Jesus belongs within a Jewish tradition. What happened afterwards when Christianity broke off from Judaism 
was indeed a later stage. But, you, but to understand Jesus is to understand the Jewish context. Now, those of you who have heard me speak about Jewish-Christian relations, I gave three lectures already on that, uh, know to what degree uh, this subject is a live subject throughout the entire early modern period. We looked at uh, Christians who fell in love with the Kabbalah and the Renaissance. We looked at 18th century uh, uh, Anglicans uh, who were translating the Mishnah, the, the code of Jewish law, uh, into, uh, into Latin and English because they wanted to rediscover the roots of, 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 uh, of Jesus in rabbinic Judaism. Um, we looked at the missionaries in the 19th century and so on who also were studying Judaism. So what is going on here also uh, on the part of Geiger? Geiger is arguing that to really understand Christianity, you need to know Judaism. And, and, and ultimately, what is Jesus? He was a reform rabbi. That's what he was. Basically, in other words, it's not to, to rediscover ancient Judaism means to discover this, this Pharisaic, this ancient Judaism, which was progressive, open, and, 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 and aware of itself. And Jesus fits into that tradition as well. In other words, not only uh, is Reformed Judaism a means of, 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 of rediscovering uh, the, 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 the quality of progressive Judaism in, in the rabbinic period, but also to understand where Christianity emerges. So Christians are indebted to Jews. They need to understand this Jewish tradition in order to appreciate their own founder and who they are themselves. Um, of course, you'll forgive the expression, this pissed off a lot of uh, Christian theologians, no question about it. Um, and Geiger enters into this extraordinary debate. Uh, who is this Jew to tell us how to study Christianity, you know? Why do you need to know Hebrew to understand Jesus or Aramaic, which of course the language that he spoke? Um, but indeed, here is a Jewish scholar standing up against this Christian theological establishment arguing indeed for a, a new understanding of Christianity as well as a new understanding of Judaism. So notice how he's functioning uh, on two fronts simultaneously, plus he's a scholar of Islam. That's what makes him such an inter interesting character to really appreciate the fullness of this a remarkable world. Now, there are so many strands to his thinking. I just want to say one or two more things before I move on to Hirsch. I just don't have the time to develop uh, this all in any great depth. Um, that paragraph also, as you pointed out, talks about Judaism as primarily a religion and not a nationality. That, of course, changes. Reformed Judaism by the 20th century has re-examined its attitude towards Zionism, towards Israel, uh, towards Hebrew, uh, towards Jewish content. In other words, this was a very strong view. And, and I want to point out as well, Hirsch also was no big Zionist. And this is before Zionism. Uh, so therefore, he also speaks about Judaism primarily as a religion. And only later on does uh, the notion of Zionism and nationality and the national definition of Judaism become more important. So therefore, that's not unusual. But the real question for Geiger and for, if, is, when you look at Judaism in this respect, there, this goes on, this breaks off. What is, there, there are, here's my other artwork. There is an inner core and an outer core. The inner core of Judaism for Reformed Judaism is the moral and ethical law. It is universal. It is based upon one's intellect. Now, I, in my intellectual history course uh, uh, at Penn, uh, begin with Mendelssohn and before him with Spinoza. And I'm able to show how these ideas develop. I can't do that right now. 
but let's just say that the moral law is at the very center. What's on the external are the ritual law. So Reform Judaism emphasized universal morality over ritual law. This also has changed in recent days, right? I mean, the whole tradition, for example, in Reform Judaism of not having a service on Saturday morning. You know, I was surprised when I first came here. But that's, you know, typical of any Reform synagogues. Um, so, you know, minimal ritual rather than maximal. But at least you study, which is, you know, a pretty cool thing. Uh, but, uh, um, but clearly, uh, that's changing. I mean, more and more ritual is entering Reform Jewish life. Uh, more people are learning how to read Torah. More people are, you know, uh, that, that's, that, 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 that's clearly a, a direction that went to the extreme in the 19th century. Now it's sort of moved back in terms of the pendulum. But then the question is, so what does it mean to be a Jew? In other words, why be, uh, what's the purpose of being Jewish? If you're not doing ritual law, is it simply uh, morality and ethics? And if it's only morality and ethics, then what separates you from a non-Jew? Aren't they doing morality and ethics as well? Christians are deeply committed to the Ten Commandments, not just Jews. Uh, so what makes Judaism unique? And particularly if you've given up the idea of a nation of returning to the land and so on. So here the idea emerges, and it actually is found more or less in this paragraph, but I don't have time to go back and look at the exact words. And that is uh, an idea that emerged in the 19th century called the mission of Israel. Not that Jews are missionaries, uh, and not that they're going to convert people to Judaism, but they have a role to play in the world, in an immoral world, in an imperfect world. A Jew is commanded to teach morality, tikkun olam. Uh, if you look at the self-image of Reform synagogues uh, anywhere, it is social action, right? Uh, Reform Jews were the first and still almost the only ones in Washington, D.C. with their social action center, fighting for the good fight, concerned about transforming the world, uh, concerned about the poor and, and the underprivileged, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, maybe some of you have met uh, my dear friend David Saperstein, who was for many years the director of the Social Action Center was appointed by Obama as an ambassador uh, to religion, uh, Rabbi David Saperstein. Um, this is a kind of image of Reform Judaism, which kind of replaced the whole notion of, uh, of, uh, of halakha. In other words, what the Jews do? They help to change the world. They are concerned with social action. The social action in a certain respect, respect uh, replaced ritual. But notice how the balance has shifted. Notice that we are still in a very different kind of place uh, as we understand Reform Judaism today. And indeed, that's what it should be, because Reform Judaism is not Reformed Judaism, it is Reformed Judaism. It continues to reform, it continues to rethink itself within the context of the world that we live in. That's exactly what Geiger meant by this, uh, this sprout, this tree that was growing and so on. Now, I'm running out of time, so let me just shift to Samson Raphael Hirsch. Uh, 9.30, do you guys got to go at 9.30? Is it over or should I? Or is, I'm going to go on for about 10 more minutes and then take a few questions. But, uh, uh, but at, at the, I got to be out of here at the latest by 10, but, uh, and I'm sure that's enough for you. Um, so uh, that, that's another half hour. Can you handle it or 20 yeah. minutes yeah. or so? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, all right. You're going to roll in. All right, I'm going to roll. I don't feel like I'm going to roll. I feel like I'm ready to collapse, but I'm standing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, so Hirsch. What I do in my thought course um, is I kind of come in every day being that person. You know, it's easy to be guided. It's a little harder for me to be Samson Raphael Hirsch. I don't look up Samson Raphael Hirsch to start with. 
But I, I want to sort of now step into his feet and kind of give you the other side of the coin, all right, for a second. So Hirsch, of course, was a rabbi in Frankfurt for many years, and he was the one that created the wall, and he is the kind of, uh, he's the neo-Orthodox Jew. For Hirsch, there were two questions. There's the cultural question and the religious question. Hirsch's work, which I have here, the first chapter, and if I had time, I would read it to you, was called The 19 Letters. He wrote many, many works, but this is his first work, um, and it is a wonderful way to understand uh, the emergence of orthodoxy in Germany. Uh, by the way, I, I got up this time. You don't mind I'm standing? Uh, you're still taping me? It's okay? <laughs> Is he awake? All right, all right, anyway. That's, that's going to be on the tape, I'm sorry. Uh, but he usually makes me stand at a certain place, and I feel very restricted. I, just, I like to walk around. Um, but anyway, uh, he's not saying anything. I'm going to go do it. Uh, so um, uh, the 19 letters are a letter between a fictional student and his rabbi. And this student goes off to college, and he sees all the great things out there. He says, what's all this nonsense I learned in Sunday school? Now that I'm in college, I can do my own thing. And Judaism is restrictive. It doesn't allow me to participate in the larger world. And that damn Talmud is just filled with all kinds of, uh, of things that are irrelevant to my life. And I just want to enjoy life because life is about beauty and enjoyment and reading great German literature and music. And what do I need to be Jewish? And then uh, the rabbi answers him in 19 letters, in which he tries to present his own theology of Judaism. So it's a, it's a wonderful way of sort of, I mean, uh, Hirsch is quite honest in this first letter in terms of talking about, um, you know, the problems of being Jewish uh, in this world uh, and, uh, but, uh, and, and tries to respond properly. For Hirsch, he has already made a concession with the larger world. Jews need to know German. Jews should go to the university. Jews should be part of the larger cultural world. But on the religious question, there is no question whatsoever. Orthodoxy means a commitment to all the commandments of Judaism, both the moral and the ritual, 613 commandments. And indeed, to be a Jew is to be a full Jew in terms of a commitment to God's law, which includes both what the Bible says and the rabbinic interpretation of that Bible, which, of course, uh, is the halakha, is the law of Judaism. So on this day, and, and in, in, in other respects, uh, so that's the big difference, of course, between him and Geiger. But of course, as I said, they share a notion that uh, returning to the homeland, I mean, he, he, he'll pay lip service to all the language of the liturgy. He's not going to change the liturgy as the Reformed Jews did. But nevertheless, he's not actually moving. He's, he's also uh, lives in Germany. Uh, and he sees Judaism as primarily religion. Uh, and in that respect, they are alike. There are only two points I want to make about Hirsch's Judaism to help to explain it. And then I can compare Geiger and Hirsch for the remaining uh, uh, two or three minutes. Um, the first point is that if you want to be an Orthodox Jew, a Jew, you need to understand it not from the outside, but internally. What he would say in German, it's internal Geist. It's internal spirit. Uh, the language is very interesting. Uh, it's perhaps too academic to tell you that it is Hegelian. Uh, the language, an internal spirit dwelling within a, a, a culture, I and mean, that's very Hegelian. Uh, he would have denied that because his idea was that we don't read outside things 
To know Judaism is to stand within Judaism, to participate in the full experience of being a Jew. In other words, don't just dip your little toe in, but immerse yourself in the waters of Judaism. Perform all of the commandments. You can only appreciate the parts by experiencing the whole. In other words, here is an argument almost for experiential Judaism. This idea will be developed later on by Franz Rosenzweig, which also, who also talks about how one, as a modern, gets into observing Jewish law. But the internal spirit of something comes not from some kind of external evaluation from the outside. You can't be on the outside and appreciate what's within. Only the inner spirit will touch you when you are involved in the totality of the experience. That's a very rich insight in terms of halakha. So halakha is not about rationally articulating whether it is meaningful or not. It is actually doing. The doing creates the hearing. Or as we say uh, in the biblical text, na'aseh nishma. We first na'aseh, first we will do, and then we will hear, understand. In other words, understanding comes out of the doing. Um, and that's uh, a, a kind of experiential explanation of what it means to observe the ritual of Judaism. So it's not about evaluating them rationally, but actually involving oneself, and one hears by this inner uh, word. The second point of Hirsch that he develops in these 19 letters is a very interesting idea. Uh, and here, I, maybe I could even, uh, well, let me hold back on the contrast with Geiger. But I, the, the, when you get this point, you'll be able to take the other, the contrast up very quickly. What do we mean by human happiness and freedom? The student raises the whole issue about being free and liberated from Jewish law. And how do I find happiness when I have to eat kosher food all the time? And I have to observe Shabbat, and I have to do this, and I have to do that, and so on. Why should I do all of that? So um, Hirsch's answer is very interesting. Real freedom is to overcome our passions, to overcome our uh, ineptitude, moral ineptitude of life, and to see the truth, and to walk towards a higher truth. In other words, you could freedom is not from, but it is to. What I'm really getting at is a very famous essay in the history of Western thought by Isaiah Berlin, another very important Jewish thinker. He didn't actually write about Judaism, but he was Jewish. Um, called Two Concepts of Freedom. The first freedom is negative freedom, as Isaiah Berlin called it. That is freedom from. It is the freedom of our Declaration of Independence. It is the freedom of the French Revolution. We want to be free. We don't want any outside body imposing its will on us. And therefore, that's what freedom means within an American context. But there's a different notion of freedom within Western thought. It is the freedom of the Catholic Church, for example. It is the freedom of Orthodox Judaism. It is the notion, uh, it is actually, uh, it begins with a philosophy called Stoicism. And the image of the Stoic is you are walking with a horse and buggy, and you are chained to that buggy. You have two options. You can either uh, resist and be dragged along, or you can walk freely with the buggy as it moves forward. By walking freely, you are free. By identifying your own will, 
your own subjectivity, your own autonomy, with a higher will, with a, with, with a divine will, with the true understanding of the world, that is freedom. To be free is to identify your will with God, to become part of a larger, and to know the truth, and not to be a, a slave to your passions or to your in, in, ineptitude about living in the world. By being free is to walk morally correct, by understanding that there, there is a higher purpose to life, and to identify your own autonomy with that purpose. Uh, it, so it's not, you know, the Catholic Church has a version of this, you know, uh, um, all, all, all systems, you know, that, that demand, you know, kind of totalitarian systems or systems that understand the truth um, uh, make similar kinds of claims. And thus, freedom, in this sense, we would call positive freedom or positively identify with something that is higher and so on. I would say that Hirsch argues in this positive freedom way, namely, overcome your subjectivity. Don't think that just being free is the most ideal way of life. Identifying with God is, is what total happiness is all about, is what meaning is all about, is what life is all about. You can't have it any better than that. And therefore, by identifying with the Torah, by identifying with a higher will um, uh, 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 in the universe, you somehow are free. Okay. I don't know if you get to that notion of freedom or you like the other notion of freedom and so on, but they, they, there are two concepts of freedom that function within Western thought. I would argue that Geiger, Geiger's notion of freedom is negative and Hirsch's freedom is positive. In other words, Geiger does believe that to be free is to be free from, is to be free to decide, and that was the basis of Reform Judaism, your own autonomy, not a rabbi, not a collective tradition, not a collective notion of God, but how you feel and how you choose in life is the ultimate freedom, uh, to, and that's what is the basis of Reform Judaism. For orthodoxy, neo-orthodoxy or orthodoxy in general, the idea of positive freedom makes more sense. Essentially, you, be, you rather than become enslaved, you become freed by identifying your will with a higher will, with the with, with halakha and accepting it. And perhaps that helps to explain the religious personality of an Orthodox Jew as opposed to every form one. I want to make, so, so basically, uh, Hirsch makes an eloquent German argument, he wrote in German, for uh, neo-Orthodoxy, for an attempt to be part of a larger cultural world, but to preserve those Orthodox traditions. But they clashed, and they argued, and the Orthodox would never accept reform, uh, and they built fences, you know, to keep out uh, the pure from the impure, et cetera, et, and so forth. Um, and, you know, the rest is history. Uh, whether Reformed Jews and Orthodox Jews can still talk to each other about such things, uh, that's, that's a, a very difficult question to ask. Uh, or are, have we already created a, a kind of Judaism which, uh, 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 where each goes its own path uh, and, and creates its own identity? I've certainly been in many Reformed synagogues where the rabbis speak about we reform Jews, which is already a way of what about we Jews uh, and you know uh, of, of defining uh, a certain category of Judaism that is distinct and unique and separate uh, from others. And of course, uh, Orthodox Jews um, in Israel have a hard time uh, with uh, liberal, with non-Orthodox 
but that's already politics and, and much more complicated uh, than simply speaking about differing philosophies. I want to point out one other way, and this is, I will end with this, um, in which reform, uh, the reform of Geiger, uh, reform Judaism of Geiger, and the orthodoxy of Hirsch are different. Um, I would argue that Geiger and his colleagues, in trying to rethink and reformulate Judaism in the world of Germany in the first half of the 19th century, fully identified with German culture. They felt comfortable in that culture. They had entered the linguistic field of speaking German, of writing in German, and they were very much at home in the culture of Germany. In fact, throughout the 19th century, going back to Amos Alon's book, The Pity of It All, uh, German Jews were leading German culture in so many ways. Uh, from Heine uh, on, uh, we have a whole group of great uh, German writers uh, who play a, uh, remember going down uh, the, uh, the Rhine River and singing uh, Lorelei, the, you know, Heine's song. They all, you know, you ever, you take a boat, you can drink some good white, uh, 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 you know, German wine. Uh, and, uh, you know, Heine's song, after a while the Nazis prohibited that because they knew he came from Jewish background. He converted, but he still was very much a Jew uh, in all kinds of ways. Uh, but uh, clearly, uh, the generation of Geiger was a generation of German Jews who, like American Jews today, fully felt German, fully felt a part of that cultural experience and so on. On the other hand, I would argue that Hirsch um, tolerates German culture, but somehow, I mean, this is all relative, I mean, it's not absolute, but we're all relatively uh, still identify himself more as Jewish than German. In other words, um, perhaps a certain discomfort about entering too much into that larger cultural space, but nevertheless realizing that a Jew cannot function without a German education, without being part of this culture and so on. Um, these two postures have very interesting uh, uh, um, uh, ramifications. Um, if German, if Reformed Jews are a part of German culture, then the question becomes, how do we create a unique voice within that German culture, which is different from Christians? Uh, we are now, I mean, we're, we were all blended into one. Uh, and therefore, uh, among Reformed Jews, the need to separate church and state. In other words, we are all part of the same German culture, but we need to, to allow Judaism to have its own integrity. Why is it that Reformed Jews have always been on the forefront on the issue of separation, search, and church and state? Don't bring, uh, I just watched, actually I turned on the television this morning, and I'm, I'm, it's the cathedral, and Trump is sitting there, and believe it or not, there's a rabbi who's uh, saying uh, the Shema prayer, the irony is I come here and I don't recite the Shema, but I heard it in the cathedral in Washington with Trump sitting there. I don't know what Trump is listening to the Shema. Uh, but for Reformed Jews, that would probably be, uh, you know, a little bit too much, right? On Saturday morning and so on. The separation of church and state. Why should the president, you know, there were six preachers at the inauguration yesterday. One of them was a rabbi and so on. The rest of it was all, you know, Jesus. Um, but for Reformed Jews, the issue is let's keep uh, 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 religious uh, 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 language and, and religious theology out of the state the separation of church and state. What about the Orthodox? Do they care? 
No, they don't take money from they'll take money for Jewish day schools from the government. In other words, there's no principle within the Orthodox community where separation of church and state is an issue. They had already made their, they were outside already. They had not identified fully with this German culture. But when Jew, when Reformed Jews stepped in, then there was a need somehow to differentiate between Judaism and Christianity within the culture of Germany. So I would argue it's a very interesting posture that emerges on the part of Geiger and his Reformed Jews and Hirsch and his neo-Orthodox Jews. So to bring this to a close, um, these are two very creative thinkers who are struggling with the challenge of being Jewish in the 19th century. Uh, their ideology, of course, as I said, emerges and transforms itself in an American context. I've only talked about the German context. But you see, obviously, the parallels with our own world. Um, each of them you know, has a standing today. Each of them, uh, their ideologies are, are reminiscent of what we are doing, uh, either as Reformed Jews or as, as Orthodox Jews. Um, uh, and uh, I, I don't have, I, I can't articulate for you which is best or which is better. I mean, I can talk about my own personal beliefs, but they're really irrelevant here. I simply want to present to you these two thinkers. But in two ways, as I've argued, I think they are in, in, in interestingly different and unique. On the issue of identifying with the larger culture, with the issue of separation of church and state, remarkable how consistent Reformed Jews have been in terms of arguing for this very strong position and how Orthodox Jews have not really, uh, have been indifferent to the whole question in the first place. Um, it doesn't matter, you know, that, uh, you know, what about the issue of, you know, putting up Christmas trees and menorahs in public places uh, and so on. You know, Chabad is uh, building the biggest menorahs you can build, uh, you know, all over uh, every public square. Um, that's not an issue for Reformed Jews. It is an issue, but Orthodox Jews don't seem to, to mind. And of course, the larger issue, if you got, get me, it's a little philosophical, the difference between negative freedom and positive freedom. The, 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 the freedom from as a freedom to, in trying to explain a rationale for uh, whether one observes the halakha or one does not. Um, I could argue that ultimately they become closer together. Reform Judaism becomes more aware of traditional Judaism. We've left out altogether a discussion of conservative Judaism, of course, which would, uh, would fill in a picture that I don't have the time to do right now. Um, but nevertheless, these ideologies still are around. They remain. They are still challenged by the world that we live in. Uh, each strives to uh, understand each other. Uh, and sometimes we get along, and often we don't get along. Um, but nevertheless, as I would argue, these are two remarkably authentic and creative responses to the modern world, uh, and we still struggle and uh, to understand them and to make them meaningful for our own Jewish lives. So, forgive my long-winded discussion. Uh, you should see me in the evening. I'm much better than in the morning. <laughs> but I did the best I could. Uh, thank you. So it's late. Do you want to stop or do you want to have a question or two? You guys have to go? Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. All right. But I'm, I'm going to end uh, no later than uh, 10 more minutes. Oh, that's it. Yeah, go on. So, when, so this is like a little bit off, but the thing that came to mind when we talked about the two types of freedom is that uh, it's a positive freedom to walk. Two. Yeah. It sounds like it, a, a rationale for people who are forced to convert. A rationale for that, people who are forced to convert. So if I gave the freedoms right, 
that walking along with a cart the way you described it, yeah. if one were to convert to Christianity, right. that they're still going to have their relationship with God, but in a different way. Yeah, but Hirsch didn't see it that way because Hirsch, know, you know, know, started out with the first point. Remember, the first point is that you got to know Judaism by being within. You got to really listen to its music by being involved with all of the law. In other words, you start saying, "Well, you know, I don't have to keep kosher, and I don't have to do this thing, and I don't have to do that." Don't see it, you know. See the whole totality. It's it's a whole package, and by doing the entire package, you remain within, and you love it all, and it. It's, in other words, or to put it in, remember Marshall McLuhan, the medium is the message? Uh, so medium is the me that medium is the halakha. Do the me participate in the medium, and then the message will become clear to you. In other words, and then that goes with the idea that, then you can add the idea of positive freedom, that you are also uh, uh, free. You are liberating yourself by accepting God. I guess the convert could make a similar argument, you know, by leaving, you know, Judaism. It's weird that it came to my mind. I mean, yeah. I, what yeah. you said made sense. Yeah. Well, but it also, you know, the Catholic Church speaks the same language, right? You follow the Pope and you follow Catholicism or certain forms of, you know, Protestant, you know, you know or I don't even know, I won't talk about Mormonism here, but, but uh, uh, so uh, you know, I mean, I, I, all, all traditional faiths, you know, have a similar notion of positive freedom. Um, and uh, it just so happens, though, that for Hirsch, it is, it is orthodoxy. It is a way of explaining, of articulating in this modern world how you can have an orthodox mind set. And that's where he's coming from. Yes? And what happens if you believe in parts of both? Does that make me schizophrenic? Conservative. Well, then I can introduce you to Zachary Frankel, and we can talk about him. Um, I, 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 I not, dare not enter uh, into a long discussion of him, but I would just say that if orthodoxy finds its its center of gravity in uh, in in Jewish law, in uh, the interpretation of the rabbis over the ages, the oral law, and so on, if Reformed Jews find its center of gravity within human autonomy and making one's own choice, the conservative community came up with a notion of Catholic Israel, now Catholic with a small c, not with a big c, Catholic being the totality of Israel. Uh, what Frankel argued, and it was an argument that made more sense in the 19th century than it does in the 20th or 21st century, uh, is that essentially don't look at either the individual or the total structure of the rabbis, but look at the way the community out there actually lives, how it observes, uh, and sort of create your norms based on slow changes within that community. So the community becomes the standard of how, what we should observe and what we should not observe. Now that works when you have a traditional community who are still involved with Jewish law, but if you were to go into uh, a reformed synagogue and try to find uh, you know, its communal level of observance, it would be awfully low. Um, so, uh, you, you, and, and so the irony is that you would be looking for uh, to create your own norms as a conservative Jew by looking at the standards of, of how Orthodox Jewish communities function, because they're the only ones that are really observing the law in general. I mean, in most conservative synagogues also, the rabbis observe Shabbat, uh, but not necessarily many of the congregants do. Um, but, but anyway, I, I, I can't teach you conservative Judaism here. It's, it's, it's gone through its own transformations, uh, and it's going through clearly a major challenge in this day and age as it shrinks um, but it was clearly the dominant ideology 
for Eastern European Jews getting off the boat in the 20s, the 30s, and the 40s, because it was a way of being very Jewish and also being modern. Uh, it was the middle of the road position was a, a meaningful position uh, for a previous generation of Jews. The question is, without that nostalgia, without that contact with the past, with a with a full enrichment, you know, can can Jews find uh, the problem with conservative Judaism is its lack of clarity in terms of its ideological pronouncement. Reform is is simple to understand. Orthodoxy is simple to understand. Uh, conservative Jews have a certain ambiguity, which was once a strength. It also can be a weakness, but you know. So you're schizophrenic. Maybe that's another name for conservative Judaism. I don't know, but uh, and I haven't introduced reconstructionist Judaism. There are other brands here, but uh, you know, you have to take my whole course. It, it, as I said, it's on tape if you want. If you're interested, yeah. I, I like your thoughts on it. On this, it seems to me that reform unhinged itself from the tradition of previous change. And whenever you've had this kind of unhinging, you've had a schism that just became some other religion. And unhinging, that I would submit, was that every other major revolution in Judaism, and there were many, many, always said, this is no change. This is what God said. You have the Deuteronomy, which, which totally changed Judaism, and says, but there can never be any adding to or subtraction from. The Pharisaic change was oral law. Say, no change, this was written on Sinai. And, and you can go to, to more than that. Every one of them has been with the charade that there is no change, this came from Sinai, it's God-driven, and reform for the first time, self-consciously staying within trying to stay with Judaism, says, no, this doesn't come from God, this comes from our minds only. Okay, that's good. And, you know, that, that's the problem with, uh, you know, Geiger's notion that, you know, the Pharisees are the first, were the first Reformed Jews. The difference was that they still would not accept anyone's notion of change, that, that it had to be within the framework of rabbinic interpretation. The rabbis are the ones that, that are the agents of change, not... Uh, it, and they change very carefully and slowly, uh, not human autonomy. So that, that was a big departure. But you're absolutely right. And, yeah, and this is a very important historical insight. Anytime you see people protesting, we are the tradition, we are unchanging, look for change. It's right underneath. You know, they're sort of hiding it. It's there. It's there. When they protest too loudly, there clearly is change. And, and, uh, but the Reformed Jews actually may change an innovation the centerpiece of, of their own understanding of Judaism. They, they openly acknowledge that they are changing and they are transforming because the time requires such, because we're losing all these other Jews. They're not going, they're not following the old Orthodox traditions. And therefore, we have to restore Judaism by openly changing. So I think, I think your point is, is, is well taken. Uh, it is a much more radical revolution than any other uh, in, in, uh, interpretation of religiosity in Judaism. Uh, all the others responded. You know, in other words, uh, reform not only creates its own ideology, but it in turn forces Orthodox Judaism to rethink itself, um, either in the most you know ultra-Orthodox way or in the Hersheyan way. Uh, and of course, Conservative Frankel uh, emerges out of. He attended the rabbinical reform conferences. And for, for him, they were too radical. You can't just throw away halakha and Jewish law. 
So he tried to come up with his own. So all of them, indeed, responded to this radical change and tried to find other ways of expressing Judaism in this period. Uh, one more question. Yeah, go on. Um, so would you say that for the Reformed Jew who would say, uh, I'm going to look at the law and see which makes sense to me. And the Orthodox would say, we accept the law and I'll understand it by observing it. The understanding will, instead of trying to figure it out ahead of time, Understand, you know, observe the law, practice the law, and understanding comes later, as opposed to trying to reverse it. Yeah, well, that's what Hirsch was saying. Um, I, I don't know if every Orthodox Jew would articulate it that way. I mean, that was the, the you know, from the Bible, Naseb Nishma, I will do it. Yeah, right. Yeah. That makes sense and so on. It, um, it, it certainly is argument, you know, if you start analyzing every particular law, I mean, for example, I always point out, you know, you know what shotness is, for example, the law of shotness. Anybody know what that is? Linen. Interesting. We don't even know what it is. Yeah, yeah, you got it. What wool and linen? You haven't ever heard of a kosher suit? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. You can't make certain things? Yeah. Now, you tell me what's the rationale behind that. I don't know. Uh, you know, you can go back and some anthropologists can analyze the notion of mixing boundaries and so on in the biblical world and so on. So that's a good example of a law that doesn't seem to have any kind of rational uh, understanding. But nevertheless, if God said it, the Orthodox Jew has to observe it. Um, so you know, if you start pick, you, picking apart, you know, or you know, these people that uh, you know, so what is what is kashrut rational or not? Why can't you eat uh, uh, you know uh, uh, lobster tails? Uh, aren't they God's creation as well? You know, or, or Reform Jews that come up with the notion of biblical kashrut. You know what Bill Kasher is? I, I never mix uh, a, 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 a lamb in its mother's milk. A, 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 you know, I, uh, what, what is it? A kid. A kid. I never mix a kid in its milk. I, you know, otherwise, I can eat anything else. You know. uh, so, um, uh, you know, each one of these laws can be picked apart as being irrational and so on. So Hirsch is really saying, no, don't do that. That's just looking at it, you're on the outside, you don't really appreciate it. The only way you can really get the total meaning is by the whole package, doing the whole thing. But isn't also a discipline? It is a discipline, it is a way of life. Yeah. It, is a, it, is, it is a way of, 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 of shaping your existence. So you can't, so it is a very meaningful idea that he's arguing. Yeah. He said, try the whole experience, and then all of a sudden it will, <coughs> meaning will, will, will be imparted to you. Um, and, 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 you know, Rosenzweig, who was never an Orthodox Jew, he was sort of moving, someone asked him uh, if, if uh, he should observe, uh, if, does he put on the bill? And he says, I'm working on it, you know, I'm on the way. <laughs> uh, in other words, he was trying, to, and he articulated a full understanding like this of the halakha, uh, but he, he, he found it difficult. You know, the famous debate, and in, in, uh, I'll mention this when I give my lecture on Buber next week, Buber and Rosenzweig got into a big debate. Buber, of course, didn't believe in any halachic things. Uh, you know, was, uh, he, 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 he said, any Jewish tradition can't tell me when God speaks to me. I, he has to speak to my own soul in a very personal way. And therefore, you know, I can't, be, it can't, I can't accept the idea of imposed commandment. And Rosenzweig said, but, but the idea is you have to take this law and make it into a personal commandment by doing it over and over again, by accepting the whole package. So Hirsch and, and Rosenzweig are speaking the same language. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, that's the difference between a Reform and, 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 and a, an Orthodox Jew, basically, uh, uh, you know, in, in terms of reality. But I think Reform Jews could certainly learn something from that insight as well, that, 
ritual life and the life of, 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 of ritual is important even if we, we need to preserve our own human autonomy and be free. A ritual can add something to our life which is not simply, can't be reduced to an idea or a rationale. We do it because it gives us feeling, uh, just like you know, our relationship with human beings. The things, certain things we do are not rational, but nevertheless are totally meaningful. Uh, and in that sense, you know, the ritual life has become more important to you know, the most reform, uh, rational Jews in the world. So uh, it, it's, it's, it's something that explains orthodoxy, but it's something that reformed Jews could learn from as well. So, uh, I don't know uh, what you got out of this morning, but I'm, uh, I'm ready to go back to bed. Uh, my grandchildren are not going to let me go back to bed. And I want you to have a good Shabbat and a good day and uh, a good life. And uh, Thank you. See you next time. See you.